Trigger warning, this podcast contains a brief discussion about suicide and suicidality, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. Welcome to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host, Freddy Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for today's episode is a mental health advocate for OCD awareness. I've covered OCD several times on the podcast so far, including previous guests Alex Shaw, Sean Flores, George Hodgson and Charlotte Brockman. But today's guest has a unique life story that shares similarities with those guests, but also lots of important differences. Zachary James was diagnosed with OCD when he was 19 years old. His OCD manifested in how it affected his romantic relationships and a hugely dark form of OCD that was thankfully short-lived but still traumatic which came in the form of paedophilic OCD. In this episode we discuss how and why those two forms of OCD affected his mental health, how he addressed them, got control of them and he now considers himself recovered. We also discuss the impact of COVID-19 on his mental health, which ironically was largely positive for Zach, and the legacy of the AIDS crisis on the mental health and physical health of gay men from the 1980s through to today, as Zachary wrote his university dissertation on it. We then discuss Zach's mental health advocacy journey and how and why he got into doing this work, how he's turned that negative into a positive, societal attitudes towards gay men and the progress that's been made since the 1970s and 80s, including stigmas, taboos, and we also talk about dating and the dating scene for gay men and some of the experiences Zach has gone through here from a mental health perspective. So this is how my conversation with Zachary James went. Zach, welcome to the Just Checking Pod, mate. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you. I know you've come a very long way for the listeners, all the way from Cardiff to record this with me. I know this wasn't the sole reason that you came. You've got a lot of great stuff to do here in London, but I had a look at your journey when you got in touch with me, and I think there's loads of things that will really help my listeners, especially people who live with OCD. But first off, how are you, mate? I am pretty good, thank you. Yeah, it was a long journey, indeed, (laughs) from Cardiff, and the football was on, so... A lot of early uh, drinkers. Early the drinkers. <laughs> the the Swansea fans are out, so that was not the best start to the day. But here we are. I'm excited to be on the podcast. So brilliant. And I understand this is your first in person podcast. My first in person podcast. Excellent, yes. mate. I'm privileged. I'm very yes. privileged. <laughs> There's some brilliant parts and light parts of your journey, mate. There's also some very dark parts of your journey. So we're going to talk all about it holistically, as I mm. always do with my guests. And without further delay, are you ready to start the show? I'm ready. Let's go. Let's start your podcast by talking about your mental health journey, mate. So I asked all my special guests this question first. Take me back to early life in Wales, teenage years. And looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Zach we meet here? So young Zach, I think a pretty naive Zach. I don't think I was very aware of mental health issues, even though I definitely did have some with hindsight. I can see that now. But, you know, I had a, I had a pretty okay childhood, grew up exactly where I'm living now. Had a few little, like, dramas with family. But I think generally, I had a pretty standard, 
growing up life. I think, yeah, as a adult, I can see that I did have OCD quite early on, but mm. I just didn't have the words to describe it then, which I do now anyway. Mm. Before we talk about the diagnosis, which happened when you were 19, mm. I just want to talk about the initial symptoms, as you said, because you said you were having them very early on in childhood. So what were they? And did you recognise that you didn't feel okay or did you just think they were like normal where any kid has? So it happened when I hit puberty. So I assume this is what uh, caused it. But it was uh, as I hit puberty and as my nan died. When my nan was in hospital even, she wasn't dead at this point. But I developed this real obsession with cleanliness and keeping my hands clean. The stereotypical OCD. Yeah, the very typical one, yeah. yeah. So I was just constantly, when we were in the hospital, constantly anti-backing my hands. Yeah, Yeah. washing my hands every night. I'd go into my mum's room being like, oh, I touched this. And then I put my hands in my mouth. Am I going to die? It was this very, like, irrational thought process. And obviously my mum just reassured me, which now I know you're not supposed to do, but, you know, we didn't have the the tools to know that. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, my mum was, every night was like, no, you're fine, you're fine. And I don't really remember... When it ended, to be honest, I think I just grew out of it, I suppose. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, that's the only real big period of, like, OCD themes I can think of as a child. Like, I think mm. I had a lot of anxiety, for sure, but definitely just related to other things. You also said your sister was very ill at a certain point in your childhood, mate, when she was quite young, I should say. And outside of your nan, I believe this was your first real experience <laughs> of trauma, yeah. or childhood trauma. So, how did it affect your mental health then, and... How did it impact on, I think we'll come to this later, sort of attachment issues that you've had as an adult? Yeah. So for context, my sister was very ill with an eating disorder. So I can't remember a whole lot of it. I think I've just trauma blocked it out, to be (laughs) honest. But it meant that my parents were very much all there for my one sister, Mm -hmm. which... Again, as an adult, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. But as a child, more of a, a why am I li- being looked after properly? Yeah, the jealousy it? element yeah, as well, yeah. I imagine. And yeah. it very much came down to me and my other sister kind of having, uh, well, my other sister looking after me a lot more. So mm-hmm. I think that, along with just, you know, general family tensions and how my parents were acting, led to just a lot of issues with relationships and attachment uh, mm. as I grew up, which kind of manifested in my 20s. So, mm. Was it a fear, going back to your sister, was it a fear of losing her and then therefore you might lose others? Um, I think so, yeah. I, I probably would say it was a big factor of that and just kind of, you know, it was very severe. It wasn't mm. uh, light at all. It was a, a really dark time for everyone in my family. So I think, yeah, that was probably a, f- a factor of that mm. uh, included. And we're obviously going to come to the positives later, but now that you and your sister have navigated adulthood, has that experience almost made your bond stronger because you have the understanding between each other of obviously different mental health mm. conditions, but having gone through that trauma and that experience? Yeah, me and my sister have a really, really good relationship now. Both very emotionally kind of aware and always kind of talking very openly about how we're feeling and how our childhood and how our parents maybe acted has impacted our behaviours now. So, you know, we've definitely got a very healthy relationship. All three of us, me and my two sisters, mm. they're both older than me. We, yeah, just have a very open relationship. Mm. Uh, so I think it's definitely made our bond a lot stronger. Let's move on to how this OCD is manifested in different ways, mate, because as you mentioned there, it's affected your OCD in cleanliness and in mm. cleaning OCD, but also in relationship OCD. Yeah. And, and a lot of my listeners might not know about this form of OCD. So just tell me how it manifested, the symptoms of it, and how it affected your mental health at the time. Sure. So it manifested before I realised it was OCD. So obviously I had no idea that it could be this form, but it started... After a, I'd had a quite a healthy relationship for about 10 months when I was 18. And then I came out of that and entered a quite a 
very quick, but the very rebound bad. was not good. The rebound was the worst <laughs> rebound of my life. Um, and after that, I started dating this other guy. Then after that, and we were together for maybe three weeks, and then we were like, okay, let's make this official. And then as soon as quick. yeah, it was very quick. Yeah, as soon as we made it official, my head just went to this really weird place of like, wait, but what if you don't like him? And I just got caught obsessively on the idea of how do you know that this is the person you want to be with? What if you're wasting their time? And then it was like my head just being so critical of them, being like, no, you think this person's repulsive. Mm. You think this person's so disgusting. Why do you want to be with them? Mm. Then it affected intimacy when I was with them. Like if we were, you know, being intimate, it would be a matter of like... You weren't present. No, I wasn't present. The entire time my head was focusing on... Or trying not to think about it. Yeah, trying not to think about it. But like, I mean, it was like constantly checking whether I was feeling attraction to them. Mm. Like, so if we were kissing, it'd be like are you feeling this? Uh, like, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it, but like, no, you, I get you know, you, like, yeah, so that was happening. In the end, I had no idea what was going on. I kind of dealt with it for about three months and I became severely depressed. I was mm-hmm. just so miserable and just not okay at all. So uh, I broke it off. And the thing with it is that I wasn't showing any physical symptoms. So this is the thing with OCD is that there's not always physical compulsions at all. Like a lot of it is mental. And for me, it's been always mental, except for that time when I was younger, it's been very much mental invisible signs yeah for sure how did you also make the distinction between say saying you had just an avoidant attachment style which many people have and it actually being quite serious ocd i think at this point i hadn't made any realization because it was the first time it happened i just blanked i was oh okay it must have just not been the right guy for me and then it continued to happen then and i assumed it was just anxiety around relationships. I was like, oh, I've got trauma. And after that, I'd been diagnosed with OCD at this point, but I'd still not made the connection between relationships and that. It wasn't until about two years into it that a therapist told me, they were like, oh no, no, this is a very common form of how OCD can manifest, which changed everything. Yeah, it was a a really weird time of, I mean, it's definitely linked to trauma. Like OCD can be brought on by a traumatic event. And the uh, other obsession that began to emerge around this in your head was this fixation on finding the one Mm. in air quotes. And now a lot of people might have that as a benchmark or something that they just want to use as, as as a navigator for life. But how did it become an unhealthy fixation for you? I think this ties into something that we'll probably talk about later, which is kind of my relationship with my identity and sexuality. I grew up in a very religious family where being gay wasn't okay. But then I think that followed me. When I did come out, I still felt like I had this pressure to live a very straight hetero life. So, you know, get married, have kids. So I think that's probably where the fixation came from. And just a lot of my own insecurities and not feeling like I could be independent on my own and like just an expectation that I had to find someone to marry. My mind just got stuck on it. I think that's a lot of just a Christian upbringing. And in your head at the time, what was the perfect person? Who was the one? Did they, did they have a face? Did they have a look? Did they have anything? Did they have traits? No, they didn't. It was like, it didn't matter. Like, you know, I'd, regardless of how they were, you know, they could be the absolute best person And there would possible. never be enough. It would never yeah. be enough. There was always like, yeah, but what if? There's always the what if they're not. That's what um, dating apps do now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Honestly. Um, <laughs> so yeah, just always just wanting more. And I think as a result of that, it led to just me getting into very bad relationships as well because I kind of became very self-deprecating of myself and not thinking I deserved these good relationships because I was constantly hurting people. Do you think you attracted the bad kind of people as well? Yeah, saw I think... That or maybe sniffed it. Like shark smelling blood, I always use the analogy. As a result of, because it was the commitment side of things, the exclusivity, which really just freaked me out and made my anxiety go crazy. So I started chasing these really casual, very emotionally detached relationships, all whilst being quite emotionally intimate. I don't, you know, we'd 
it'd be a matter of like being in bed and trauma dumping on each other but then oh no it's just casual like there's nothing here and like mm-hmm. so a lot of those relationships so it's are, intense and not intense yeah yeah and like that was like kind of my safe space of like oh yeah this is fine because my mental health's fine but you know that was probably doing some other damage as well mm. when you did break up with these partners did you feel relief or did you feel guilt or did you feel both it was a bit of a mix it was a lot of relief just because it honestly is a matter of like as soon as i make that decision my mental health just goes back to just being completely fine and obviously i'm sad and like the feelings changed and i miss the person but i know that it's better for me in that moment like that's always what it comes to with my mental health it's like you, you need to break up with this person for yourself, which is, you know, I don't want to do that. And it always comes out of nowhere as well, which I think is the worst thing about it is that, yeah, I'm... Can't bear for it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm acting very normal uh, in the relationship. I'm being very kind and very loving towards my partner, but, like, inside it's just this, like, complete 24-7 mental struggle. So when I'm like, I can't do this anymore, my mental health is really bad, they're always like, oh, okay, that kind of came out of nowhere. And I'm like, yeah. A much darker and more disturbing OCD, and I'd probably say the by the sounds of it, the most stigmatised form of OCD I can think mm. of, mate, you experienced it for four months, was something called paedophilia OCD, yeah. which the clue is in the title. How did that affect your mental health much more severely than, say, the relationship OCD or the cleanliness OCD? So this is the theme that came straight after the first time I experienced relationship OCD, and this is what got me diagnosed. So as soon as I broke up with that first partner, I was in work. I worked in a kid's section in a, in a shop, and I can connect the dots now. Yeah, yeah. And it was a matter of like, there was a incident where a very strange old man came in and was doing some weird stuff in the, the kids section. And then everyone was kind of talking about it. And I think someone made the comment of like, oh, how do you like, how, like, how do you become a pedophile? Like mm. what, like what makes that joke? And then and this thought came into my head. I was like, what if you're one? Um, wow. And then I just spiraled. I, I became so obsessed the idea that I could be one. I was like going back to things from when I was like seven years old where I was like, what about that time when you were seven and you were on a beach and there was another child that was also like... You're thinking about it as an adult yeah, rather than like, as a child. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so bizarre. And I was like constantly making these connections. My mind was going back and forth trying to prove myself wrong. I became so miserable in that job. I couldn't look at kids at one point because I was so terrified that... I was just going to like lash out and do something really awful. And so I just, you know, I ended up, I was constantly ill and work. I was never going in. It made me really, really depressed and to the point, you know, I, later on it became quite suicidal. And at this point, I'm right in saying that you're also self-harming, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So I was, uh, it was the moment I realised I needed help. I was, you know, I was in the bath crying my eyes out. Because at this point it was very much like I would rather be dead than be a paedophile. I was like, I was like, this and cannot be thoughts as well. Yeah, I was yeah. like, I can't live like this. I do not want to be this person. And yeah, so I was self-harming and um, very, very suicidal, which is when I finally kind of reached out to therapy. But Was the self-harm then punishment then rather than escapism or distraction as some people have said self-harm is for them? I would say it was more of a distraction. It was, okay. I guess, no, I guess a mix. It was probably a mix of distraction and self-punishment. Like, right. you know, this is what you deserve for being such a gross, disgusting person. Mm. When did you realise that you weren't? So I realised I wasn't when I typed in on... Google trying Whoa, to that, that, that could be a dangerous yeah search. it was it was <laughs> a dangerous search but I typed in because I was just like I need to be sectioned I was just like I need it so that's where I was kind of aiming I was like I need to like stop this from happening and the first thing that came up was OCD Action which is a, a very famous OCD charity and there was a forum and on this forum there were just thousands and thousands of people talking about the exact same thing like being like this is what I'm going through I'm scared that this is what I am and I just remember bawling my eyes out, being like, oh my gosh, like, this is what it is. 
And that's when I told my mum, and I was like, I need to see a OCD therapist. Because I'd been to therapists before that, mostly religious ones, just because... Right. Yeah, which was never good. I can't I imagine they would never opt, yeah. Oh my gosh, no, I had the, the worst experience. The first therapist I ever had was... um this Christian one, and I told her what was going on, and obviously had no understanding of what OCD was. She was like, oh, can I pray with you? And I was like, yeah. oh, and she was like, if I start speaking in tongues, I'm sorry. Oh, Jesus. And okay. she did. Yeah, she started speaking well, in tongues in front of me. Yeah. Started speaking in tongues, and I was mortified, and then even more convinced. Just very unprofessional. Yeah, it was, uh, it was not the right place. Um, mm. But yeah, and then I saw an OCD therapist, and she was like, yep, what you're experiencing is one of the most common forms of OCD. Really? Um, yeah, okay. she, it's, it's unbelievable. Like, intrusive thoughts, just in different ways. It doesn't necessarily have to be pedophilia. It can be, I'm a, I'm a serial killer. I fancy my... Like, rapist. Rapist. Like I fancy well, my family yeah. or something. Uh, it was a... Yeah, and it's so really hard to vocalise. Like, you say that to someone who, like, even who's got understanding of mental health or, or mental health issues. If you say that, oh, I'm thinking about this, they'll be like, I think you're a... Yeah, absolutely. Like, exactly. Insane person, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was even telling therapists. It was like I'm going to tell them they're going to put me in jail. Mm. So it took me even a while to tell my therapist as well. Mm. I was like, I always described it as like, oh, I'm having these really awful thoughts. Uh, by and then I eventually opened up, and it, it was a uh, very relieving when I finally was told. Is that um, the heart of the stigma? Do you think with OCD or with people who have a, the very severe forms of OCD? Because most people in the general public will think of OCD as cleaning rituals or turning a light off and on yeah. or something like that they won't think of these really actual dark disturbing thoughts no i mean a lot of people just think they have ocd when they don't and i mean that's no fault of their own the misinformation around ocd is ridiculous but people don't understand even with these like you know very like the washing your hands and stuff they don't understand the thought process that goes behind them these people aren't washing their hands because they like to wash their hands there i'm washing my hands because if i don't wash my hands something my dreadful. family might die my family yeah, might yeah, die yeah. or it'll prove that i'm not a a good person or it's such a awful and like debilitating ritual you get mm. stuck into a big positive for you Zach like you said was the therapy and it worked mm. really well and you also went on medication yeah however the downside was you thought it worked so well that you stopped the therapy altogether <laughs> yes so what happened then so this all was all happening just before I went to uni so I was like I was convinced I wasn't going to be able to go to university and then I took meds I went on I think it was Citalopram. Classic SSRI. Yeah. yeah. And just the thoughts overnight just disappeared. All fear I had just disappeared and I was I was fine again. And I was like, No oh. side effects or anything like that? I mean, for the first two days, I felt like numb. It was right. like a horrible two first days. But after that, yeah, it just cleared my mind completely. And I was like, oh, I don't need therapy anymore. I'm ready to go to uni. Like, I've handled it. Which was a very, very silly mistake. Mm-hmm. As when I eventually came off them later in uni... The OCD came back in a different form, but I mean, I'm glad that it, it was a different form, to be honest, but... Uh, so who's the Zach we meet at that point? Zach we meet, so that's... When you did relapse, When I did relapse, yeah, so that was second year me. I, don't know, I just came off meds, and then this entire time, this whole relationship thing had been going on, and I still hadn't made the connection that it was OCD, so that feels irrelevant at this point in the story. But yeah, I was, uh, I, be- I developed real anxiety around my health which kind of ironically was whilst I was doing a lot of drugs uh so it was, no, I've been there. yeah it was it was I was constantly worrying about my heart whilst doing hard drugs then like <laughs> in the evening uh it was just so redundant and unproductive and yeah so I think that's when I realized I needed help again uh and kind of got back onto meds and stayed on them for a while mm. after that until about the pandemic as you said you weren't self-aware enough at this point to know how to deal with the OCD you've Mm. just only been diagnosed really so you then entered another relationship which Mm -hmm. then became very toxic yeah and I'm right in saying that he was abusive towards you yeah so how did that 
affect your mental health at the time? So it was a really weird relationship, uh, a very quick, quick one. We met in January of 2019, I think, and it was a complete instant, like fall in love kind of situation. I'll describe him now as a narcissist. Right. Um, but he pulled this whole, I'm in love with you. I've never met someone like you in my life. What um, else tend to do? Yeah. yeah. I was like love bombing and trauma dumping on me a lot. And to the point like, you know, I was, I thought I was in love with him too, because mm. he'd put this image in my head. The of, charade was there. Yeah, yeah. I was like, was so romantic and very, just so cringe. Uh, in, in hindsight, <laughs> just ugh. But this was all happening whilst my OCD had kicked off again. My head was so awful. And I tried communicating this to him a million times being like, I can't do this. And every time I try and break up with him, he'd, tell me something really bad about his life, some trauma that had happened. So he effectively kept me in this relationship. Which uh, is abusive in itself, yeah, which is so what a lot of people It was very, emo- a lot of emotional abuse. Mm. And it definitely had a big effect on me afterwards. Like it put me in a lot of therapy to mm. kind of get past that. Do you think domestic abuse amongst gay men is talked about enough? No, no. Oh, absolutely not. I've never even really uh, thought about that. But yeah, no, I think it's so much more sinister and uh, I mean it's not obviously all domestic abuse is sinister but Your insidious yeah. yeah I say insidious is the word it's a lot more insidious than that like yeah it just really isn't talked about and toxic traits in gay men I think are kind of a lot more normalised it's like the whole stereotypical oh the sassy mean gay man uh, like cattiness cattiness yes, yeah. yeah cattiness is very much like expected I think of a lot of gay men um, I mean this is all just my opinion so <laughs> but uh I think that definitely is a problem. I, you know, there's a lot of a lot of abuse that happens in gay relationships for sure. It's quite sad for me to hear that because you know the the point of accepting yourself and you know all of my gay friends that I know found themselves and they were able to find a lot of people in, in the gay community who they're now lifelong friends mm. with. And the point of coming out is to accept yourself and not be bound by stereotypes, not having yeah. to accept a new set of stereotypes when, you, when yeah. you have that journey. I think it makes a lot of sense that these stereotypes exist because, you know, most gay men have about 18 years of their life when they're not out. Like, I think the average age of coming out for gay men, I mean, I, it's probably dramatically changed now with how much culture's changed. But like when I was growing up, 18 to 20 was normally when you came out as gay. So you've got 18 years of like repression, closetedness. Yes. So... Yeah. All you want to do, and I definitely did this, was just go the extreme other way and just Can't be, be a straight yeah. acting gay man. Oh, yeah, I would. Yeah. I'd say in, but in gay, I'm doing air quotes. The yeah, yeah, but I'd say um, the gayest acting gay man. Even like I was so camp and so much more. Well, after you'd come out, after I'd come right, out, right, yeah, like right. I went through this real stage. Try to make of, up for lost time. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. like you go, and I think that's where a lot of the stereotyping comes from, like the mean mean cattiness is just like there's a lot of internalized homophobia the gay best and, friend yeah he's got, he's got six girls on yeah. girl on his arms yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. you know there's a lot of shame that we have to deal with when we mm. when we come out of years of like hiding ourselves and like there's a lot to process and i don't how did you, you know, find the balance just accepting yourself except yeah. i mean it's take it's been a long journey as i said it's been a religious religious family so i've been consistently told for the majority of my life that if i'm gay i'm going to hell so you know it's been a lot of processing that and i definitely was quite a mean insecure guy when i first came out and i was really projecting onto mm. people and I, yeah i think just i've reached self-acceptance with my identity i don't ever think about the fact i'm gay mm. i ever i'd like to say i'm a good person now <laughs> <laughs> did it take but, you to realize that being gay is not your identity it's just a part of who you yeah, are yeah yeah i think and i think that you know there's plenty of room for you to have so much power in your gay identity and have it quite vocal in, in how you present yourself mm-hmm. 
you know, because we should be able to after mm-hmm. after being told we can't for so long. Like, fuck it, why mm-hmm. why not? But yeah, I think it varies from person to person. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, I've met some lovely friends from the gay community, and mm-hmm. like it's been a very supportive place as well as it's been quite an awful. Place well, that was gonna be my next question. Have you have you met any gay friends who who maybe said to you at that point, you don't have to be this, you don't have to do this, and they maybe could sense that you were maybe sort of overacting or they you were kind of playing up to something that you weren't mm, I think it always was like a lot of self-realisation okay like, well that's yeah, good yeah. just realising I think most gay men have that as well I'm just like you know you eventually tone down and <laughs> kind of just settle into yourself a lot more and you know I consider myself quite a masculine gay man mm. within the scene of it all but uh yeah, I think it's just a lot of growth and you grow with your friends and, you know, four of my best friends are from high school and we all came out as gay. And then I've made some great friends off the gay, being in the gay scene as well. The scene. The scene, yes. Let's fast forward a little bit again now, mate, and talk about the second relapse that you had because mm. whereby the situation is flipped a little bit because instead of stopping your therapy, you made the decision to come off medication. So why did you do that and how did it lead to the relapse? I came off medication just because... I'd been fine for so long. I think I'd been like a year now and I was like, I'm not having these thoughts. And I think at this point I had a lot of stigma around medication and like, oh, you shouldn't be on it. You know, you're weak if you're on medication. So it was very much just a matter of like, no, I can do this without it. And yeah, and then I came off it and had a good few weeks, I think. (laughs) And then at this point I was like, I was already doing a lot of drugs anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. It was second year of uni and I was in a group of people who loved raves. So <laughs> yeah, uh, it just happened. And then I think Where did you go to uni? Exeter. Exeter, okay. Yeah. I went to Sussex, I lived in Brighton. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. right. So yeah. similar things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so I was already, I hadn't related a lot of my drug use then. I mean, I my previously when I was a lot younger, when I was going through, I was doing a lot of drugs. But in uni, I hadn't really related it to mental health until suddenly I had this really bad panic attack where... We'd been smoking. I think I'd done two weeks straight of just binging drugs. A bender, shall we say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then I kind of was chilling with my friends. I remember exactly what we were watching. Black Mirror, the Miley Cyrus episode. Oh, God. Uh, That's not the best one. No, it was a terrible episode. (laughs) That's not the best episode to be watching while on any drug. (laughs) And I just remember there was like this tense moment in it. And I remember my heart beating really fast. And I was like, oh, okay. It's just because the Black Mirror that... Mm -hmm. uh, and then, really invested. Yeah, and then the episode ended, and I was like, oh, my heart's still pounding. And I just said to my friends, I was like, guys, my heart is, like, really, really going. And it's like that Adventure Time meme when he's sitting there and the house still fine. He's yeah. like, this is fine. <laughs> <laughs> and then my arms started tingling, my left arm started tingling, and I was getting loads of chest pain, and I was like, guys, I was like, I don't think I'm okay. I was like, I feel like I should call 111. And they were like, no, because I've been smoking weed. So, uh... Like, was, <laughs> don't do it! Yeah. So I called 111, and they were like, yeah, you should probably go to hospital. And I was like, oh, okay. And then caught a taxi to hospital where they made me wait for like five hours uh the worst five hours of my life it was just i was like surely Did i'm dying subside at all at that point it was just five hours of constant like just no, no 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 i was just i was constantly just like really really anxious convinced i was going to die i literally texted all my friends saying i love you because <laughs> oh uh, i was mate. so convinced that i was dying and then i went in to the doctor and he was like have you been doing drugs i was like yeah. <laughs> yes. He was like, have you, have you been smoking weed? I was like, yeah. And he was like, do you smoke cigarettes? I was like, yeah. Uh, and he was like, you see where I'm going with this, don't you? And I was like, oh, okay. And he was like, you're not having a heart attack. Your heart's fine. You're having a panic attack because you've been smoking weed. And I was like, oh, okay. Thanks. And then went home. And then after that, though, my heart just remained up. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember going home that night, lying in bed. My heart was still just pounding so much. And I was like, my heart was like, they've got it wrong. You are going to die. 
and then I literally lay awake the entire night and then my sister came and picked me up from Exeter because I was just that done I went I went home for like a week and yeah my heart just remained really high the entire time I was just in a constant state of so much anxiety um, did you feel like you were in a constant state of like fight or flight sort of thing? yeah yeah like I was just I, I became obsessed with constantly checking my pulse and this went on for like I'd say a good three months, my heart was just all over the place. I was just so aware of chest pain and everything. And obviously when you're anxious, you get so much more chest pain as well. So it was just this self-fulfilling cycle. And then palp- so, so many palpitations. And then Googling my symptoms constantly. Oh, I'll like, never do it. Yeah. Oh, it's the worst. Uh, and then, I still do it now. I'm like, why am I doing this? Yeah. So don't do it. Shut the tab. I convinced myself that even though the healthy resting heart rate is between 60 and 100, I convinced myself that my heart rate had to be between 60 and 70 at all times. And if it was above that, it meant I was having a heart attack. Wow. Um, yeah, so it was a very unsustainable standard of living. You didn't do a doctoral degree. You didn't no. do a medical degree, did you? <laughs> and then, yeah, I got... And then I went back to therapy. And then that's when they told me that they were like, yeah, you should be doing therapy and meds at the same time. And you can't... Like, there's not one without the other. Mm. And, yeah, and then it kind of all subsided. And I got a lot better. I was still doing a lot of drugs. I took a bit of a break. But, uh, yeah. But I think it changed... The perspective of why I was doing drugs changed. And, you know, I don't really do them anymore in the mm-hmm. way I used to. But I'd say it was more unhealthy when I was 18, 19 doing them. Yeah. That was like a distraction from mm. all of the thoughts I was going. We jumped about a little bit in places, but just tell me about the diagnosis when it happened. Did you feel validated? Did you feel scared? What were your emotions when you were actually told? Oh, validated completely. Yeah. It was like, oh, I'm not a paedophile. Fan-fucking-tastic. Like, <laughs> that was, must be the first one. Like, yeah. tick off the list. And yeah, it just, uh, I was like, oh, okay, this is fine. I was like, I can work with this. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I had a lot of ERP, which is a exposure response prevention therapy, and CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. What um, does the first one do for the listeners who haven't heard of it? So, Exposure, resp- exposure re- response prevention, response prevention yeah. So it's a very, very intense form of therapy, specifically meant In my head, I've got like one of those, like an episode of The Simpsons where he's got like, he's, he's, his eyes are held like open and he's staring at a screen. In my head, it's something like that, but it, I, don't, I, mean, I know it's not. Yeah. It kind of, uh, it's not that far off. I mean, uh, <laughs> that it's, torture element, yeah. It's, you effectively do, you jump into the deep end and you torture yourself. Like wow. you, you have to write things out like, I am a paedophile. And like really like really is facing your fears really face the fear yeah. of what it is. The only way you'll realize these things are not true about yourself is by first accepting them and kind of just really putting yourself in the situation of like, okay, but I might be kind of just getting to that point where you accept that it is a possibility. So accepting the uncertainty that you could never, ever know for sure. And when you finally kind of accept that, you realize how irrational it is. You're like, right. And that yeah. gets you to the place of realizing yeah. it's an irrational So you thought. realize that it's a rational thought because like, you realize that you're not actually one because you're like, mm. oh, okay, no, I am not. And then, yeah, it's a, you, you know, it works with all forms. Like, so with relationship OCD as well, it's a lot of just writing out a breakup with my partner, like mm. writing out a paragraph of me breaking up with my partner and seeing how that feels and um, doing that sort of thing. Let's go back to sexuality now because you also found a lot of stigma in your association with the AIDS crisis. Mm. And you wrote your dissertation, I believe. I did, on yeah. It as well. Two, well, no, one of them probably. One of them, one of them. Yeah. So, for the listeners who don't know, obviously the 1980s specifically, and to a certain degree the 1990s, were a pretty difficult time <clears throat> to be a gay man, specifically because of the HIV <clears throat> and AIDS crisis. And the early noughties were just a bad time because of homophobia in general. Yeah. So, for you, how did you feel when you researched the topic in the first place and actually found out about it? And how did you deal with its legacy? As a gay man. So I think it's one of those parts of history, which is such a 
dark, horrendous time that no one knows about, and I had no idea how bad it was, and I don't think most people do. Well, a generation um, of gay men were lost. Yeah, literally, much, like, yeah. you know, the reason we don't have gay teachers now, or, like, we do have gay teachers, but, like, if the AIDS crisis hadn't happened, the progression of gay equality would be so much greater, because, but they all died, like, literally all of them. I've got, I've got a friend who lived through it, and he went to, I think, eight friends' funerals in the space of, like, four weeks. You can't even imagine that. Like, mm. it's so intense. Just your friends dying around and, like... And the government not doing anything. The yeah. government intentionally neglected it. That was the problem, is that the government didn't give it any time because they saw it as God's revenge. They thought it was a good thing that gay men were being Self-inflicted harm, yeah. essentially. They were like, oh, it's your fault. You're promiscuous. But then that promiscuity was coming from a, a different place. It was coming from a place of shame where mm. these gay men were told, oh, all you are is this, like, disease in society that sleeps around. And sex-fueled. And sex-fueled, yeah. catches AIDS and dies. Mm. So then, obviously, you start to believe that in yourself. You're like, well, maybe that is all I am. And then promiscuous sex becomes a part of your life, and you don't care about catching HIV anymore because... There's a nihilism there that comes in. It's like, I don't care about my life anymore. I'm just going to have fun. It's a horrible time. And, you know, even though HIV has come so far... Again, I don't think many people even realise how far HIV has come. I think I believe I saw an article recently that they actually cured it. Oh, no. In a a medical trial. They've cured a third person of it. Yes, that was it. Um, Yeah. But I mean, even things like, you know, if you have HIV, you can live, it's called U equals U, which is undetectable and untransmittable. So you don't have a huge viral load and you can't transmit it to other people. And you can touch people. You can touch people. Yes. um, I'm sure you know the famous event that Princess Diana went to. Yeah, exactly. She shook hands with the person who had HIV, Mm. with the gay man who had HIV. I think he had AIDS at the time, but yeah. Person, yeah. she shook hands with that person. And it was a massive deal. Like it was yeah. a groundbreaking, I mean, it sounds mad to say now, but it was a groundbreaking moment showing that you could actually touch people. Yeah. It. Yeah. Not I mean, it's, it's, a, it's bloodborne. Like there's no other way to catch it. And, you know, even like the word AIDS is kind of becoming an old fashioned term now. Places like Terence Higgins Trust are trying to get rid of it and call it now late stage HIV. Cause, oh, okay. Can you explain yeah. that distinction then? So all HIV is, is when you develop three symptoms like three big symptoms of HIV I think it's like so if you had like you developed I don't know pneumonia Mm -hmm. and then two others then it would become AIDS so it's acquired uh, immunodeficiency syndrome but all AIDS is is late stage HIV so they're both curable not curable but both treatable and people can go from an AIDS status back to a HIV status oh okay is that right so in my understanding of it Back in the day, it was if you had HIV and it wasn't treated, then it became AIDS and then AIDS became well, a, a death sentence. Well, back then, yeah, it would have been. But AIDS doesn't necessarily mean a, you know, it's still a lot higher risk because you've got these cancers and mm-hmm. awful diseases that are killing you. I think, yeah, so AIDS is not, I mean, AIDS is the thing that kills you, but it's the viruses you catch because your immune system is so right. weakened. But yeah, so generally it's now being called late stage HIV okay. just because it's, I mean, the word AIDS just has so much stigma around it anyway and what did a film like Philadelphia do um Philadelphia yeah I've not seen the film Philadelphia it's with Tom I'm pretty sure it's with Tom Hanks and he plays a gay man who contracts it oh okay uh I don't know if it did anything maybe, maybe, maybe you should watch it oh my gosh no, how embarrassing <laughs> that's your homework uh, <laughs> <laughs> what I'll ask is a separate question then is mate because obviously the gay scene and gay men in general I think particularly were so foundational to so many music genres you look at underground dance music, house, mm. garage, disco, and because of that scene was underground and it was populated by a lot of gay men, you know, who worked in the in the industry, who were customers, who went to the mm. clubs, do you think that added to the mistreatment of it because it was seen as something underground and therefore not in the mainstream? Yeah, I mean, it was just, there was this obsession with traditional society. Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, who were like in bed with each other at this time when a... Uh, 
AIDS was at its peak. We're both like just pre- saying no. Just saying like, yeah. oh, gay people don't exist. Section twenty eight yeah. uh, came yeah. in and stuff like that. And they both had gay friends. Nancy Reagan and Ronald Reagan were friends with Rock Hudson, who died of AIDS, and that was kind of a big step. And when it changed, when one of their friends died, so uh, mm. you know. But there was some. I mean, so many, like, so many influential people in history died from HIV. So we are, and the queer scene generally is always swept under the rug and not given, like, queer erasure is quite a a thing that happens. But, you know, it's uh, a lot more accepted now, despite having a long way to go. And, you know, the effects of the AIDS crisis still follow through into gay men today, Mm. despite not living through it, Mm. which is what my dissertation's about, about um, cultural trauma. I suppose about um, how, legacy trauma. Yeah, yeah, we live with this fear of HIV and that it's ingrained into being gay. I remember one of the first things my dad said to me when I came out to him was, "I just don't want you to catch HIV." And he was saying that from a very miseducated. I was going to say, yeah. yeah. I mean, there was obviously saying it from a good place, but maybe not in the yeah. right way. <laughs> no, yeah, it was it was from a good place, I guess. And I mean, that was six years ago now, so he's learned a lot, and mm. I've taught him a lot about uh, HIV. But um, you know, so you live with this ingrained every time I'd sleep with someone. It was like, okay, well, what if I've caught HIV this time? And then it, it would just eat at you. And I, mm. when I did this dissertation, I did a lot of focus groups and talked to loads of gay men, and they all just held the same fear. Like, there's just so many gay men carry the fear of HIV with them, which is, yeah, like, propelled with OCD as well. What do you then make of something like monkeypox? So monkeypox, again, I mean... Which seems a long, ago, it's a long time ago that it was quite prominently in the news, but yeah. it seems to have kind of gone off the radar now. I mean, yeah, it's gone off the radar, but as no result of the government, as a result of queer men, queer men and trans women generally have been the, like... Vanguard? Main, the the main people who've cut it, just because it was unlucky. Oh, you mean of people catching, not yeah. raising awareness of it yet, sorry. Yeah, but I think we've learned a lot from the AIDS crisis and from COVID that, you know, when monkeypox started happening... My gay friends were so on it, telling each other, like, have you had your monkeypox vaccine? Like, we were all so quick. And as a result of the community, that's what stopped the... That's what needs to happen. Yeah, it so... It should be, oh, let's brush it under the rug because of the association with yeah. AIDS and the association with HIV. No. It's like, no, let's get it out let's... in the open and let's get the vaccines if we need to get them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think it's the community response to it was incredible. I'm, like, very, very proud of the community for how how it acted. Let's move on to COVID-19 now. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned it a little bit earlier in the pod and it's something that you wanted to discuss because ironically from a positive perspective. Yeah. So why did the lockdown in your words help your OCD and massively? So yeah, at this point I'd realised that OCD and my relationships were a connection. I realised that at the end of 19, 2019. So suddenly I wasn't allowed to date anymore and I was just kind of alone so I was like okay this is some time to be single and my mental health was just I don't know I just found it such a good time I mean I'm you know a, a lot of people with OCD probably have very different opinions on it but <laughs> are you naturally an introverted person did it help in that sense or oh you... no I'm I'm very extroverted okay. yeah so I did obviously I did struggle I'm a very huggy physical person mm-hmm. I missed my socializing and all that sort of stuff but um yeah, I think just the not having to worry about relationships and not kind of seeking relationships really was just a good reflective time for me. Mm. And considering what you said very early in the pod about cleaning OCD, mm. I mean, COVID-19 was literally the worst thing possible for imagine a lot of people who had cleaning OCD. Why did that not come back to the forefront then? When we were actually being told, wash your hands, say happy birthday, all yeah, that as you do it. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I think I've never really known why I've never... Uh... So I think the difference with me and a lot of people with OCD is that from first symptoms to diagnosis was very, very quick, which is not common. The average 
amount of time it takes for someone to be diagnosed with OCD is seven to ten years. Wow. Um, Similar to ADHD, I think. Yeah, it? but I was four months, like f- four months of it. So, you know, I think that very quick amount of awareness I got has helped me tackle any other sort of things that have gone on. But I think just with cleaning and stuff, whilst OCD is very irrational, it's only with things that I can't more I don't know how to say what I'm about to say like um with relationships for stuff there's a lot of uncertainty with it anyway I think okay I can objectively see that washing my hands once mm-hmm. is fine it's no it's just more tangible it's more tangible okay. yeah. yeah so in my head you know obviously that's not everyone's experience with OCD but for me it's just it's just not something that's ever uh, affected me mm. let's talk about recovery now because mm-hmm. you now consider yourself to be in the best state the best Zach yes possible for sure so how did you reached that Well, starting up my own mental health page was a big, um, uh, what's the word? A big factor. Oh yeah, sure. (laughs) Big factor in that. I think just this breathing and being authentic at all points has just been such a help in eradicating all shame. I think as soon as it was all out in the open and everyone knew my business, I was kind of like, well, I have nothing to hide anymore. And it's just dramatically changed my perspective on everything. You know, I still do struggle with relationship OCD, but it's in a different place from what it used to be. I know what I'm dealing with and I know that I have the tools to help it now. So I think I've just, I've got good friends around me. I've built a really good community of people who have OCD as well. And yeah, I think it's just a lot of self-love mm-hmm. I think has happened in the last year or so. It's a long way to go. I think uh, the best way to put it is that I'm just knowing that you're constantly, I think if, if you're constantly learning, then you're doing everything right. So I think that's, yeah, where I am. We're going to talk about your mental advocacy journey in a little bit, but let's just reflect on your mental health journey here, mate. So firstly, what has it taught you about yourself? What has it taught me about myself? That I'm a very resilient person. You know, I've gone through a lot of shit through my life (laughs) and I've always managed to come back on top. And it's taught me that recovery isn't linear. That is the main thing that I've taught, I've learned and I preach every day is that it truly, you will be, it's like climbing a mountain. Like, you know, you've got to, go down a million hills before you reach that top peak and it does happen I think just having that in my mind that when I'm going through a really rough time that this doesn't eradicate any of the progress I've already made has really helped me and like keeps me in a even when I'm in a low place keeps me in quite a good place and as a final question if you could go back and talk to the Zach who was anxious about losing his sister as a child the Zach who was in the midst of that abusive relationship or the Zach who was suicidal and his OCD was completely out of control what would you say to him, knowing what you do now? I'd say reach out to your friends more so than you did. Talk to the people around you. I've been very, very lucky with the support network I have in my life. I've got some of the most incredibly open friends I have. And then next to that, I didn't just be kind. You know, I was I was not treating myself very well and didn't back myself. I think I go... In everything I say, anyone I talk to, I'm always, I always just, just back yourself. You're the only person who's going to back yourself at the end of the day. Do you listen to yourself as well? I do. <laughs> I'm, I, I try to. Anyway, I'm a lot better at um, doing it now. Even if I don't think I'm doing well, I go in with a, like if I'm doing an interview and it was a bad interview, I'll still tell myself I smashed it. Uh, like I just. Positive po- delusion. Yeah, yeah positive yeah. delusion. Maybe, maybe so. But I think it's just, it really helps me just keep confident and um, keep on track. Let's talk about your mental health advocacy journey now because you talked about Zach, the person, and that mental health journey you've gone on. So you've built these experiences. You've turned them into a massive positive on Instagram and TikTok. So firstly, why did you want to start this journey and turn that negative into a positive? I think just realising how little I knew and about OCD when I was younger and how 
that would have changed my life. I would have not been anywhere near as depressed as I was if I had the words to say that was OCD. Before I even started an advocacy page, I started posting like occasional like comments about it just on my normal Instagram. And people would always pop up to me being like, thank you so much. Like I'm going through this as well. And I was like, it was just a very rewarding experience. So I was like, you did know. Did it surprise you? Yeah, I think it did. I was like, you don't realize how many people around you are just struggling themselves. And it's like, it gave me a lot of perspective on how much everyone is just going through the exact same thing. But yeah, so I just wanted, I just really wanted to make sure that I could reach out to young people and just make sure they just don't have, or they, at least they can get a diagnosis early on in their life. And I think that is happening a lot more now. There's still a long way to go with misinformation around OCD. Mm. We still have uh, big, big corporations spilling awful news about OCD all the time. There was a something that happened recently with the New York Post in America where they put this really weird article out about how people with OCD are linked to higher rates of extremist behaviours. And it was talking about this serial killer in America who had OCD tendencies. And they're just promoting that to so many people who listen to their stuff. And it's just like, if I can do just like the tiniest little change so that people, when they read the article, be like, oh, this is in- inaccurate, mm. then that's what I want. Well, you talked there about stigma, and OCD is obviously still a very stigmatised mental health condition in the mainstream conversation, mate, and it's become, perhaps, I think a little bit, on the other end of the spectrum, a bit too casualised as a term. Like, mm. some people just think that being organised is OCD, and yeah. all of these other stuff that you've probably heard a million times. So, what needs to change to break the stigma for people who have OCD and this debilitating OCD? And also, how do we educate kids so they know that what they're going through might not be OCD. It might just be, they're just overthinking a little bit. Oh, I think... It's a big question. It is a big question. (laughs) I think, you know, a lot more mental health education in schools would be really, really good. I think more so teaching teachers to tell for telltale signs. Obviously, kids love attention. Mm. So if you tell a kid symptoms of OCD or something... It might become a self-fulfilling prophecy. yeah. Yeah. So I think there's definitely a line on how you do it. But yeah, I think just... A lot more, we need to have a lot more big celebrities in the media talking about uh, OCD. And the, yeah, you said the word OCD is such a weird word. I posted something actually, I'll see if I can quickly find <laughs> it whilst I'm talking. Because uh, the French used to call OCD, I'm gonna, sorry for my pronunciation if there's French people, uh, la folie de doute, or doubt, okay. which means the madness of doubt, mm-hmm. uh, which I just think is so much That's better. That's quite apt actually. Yeah, yeah. It's, it describes OCD so much better than what well, I mean what is obsessive compulsive disorder to someone who's never heard of that mm. like and now it is just like so associated with being an adjective and being something that everyone has this quirky trait of but it really is just all about going crazy with doubting every decision you make so you know I think maybe just a, a new word yeah. <laughs> would be great and but... to teach kids that you know it's not a quirk this is actually yeah. a seriously debilitating condition if you do genuinely have it it needs professional help yeah. it needs support I mean the the main problem comes down to the media where are these kids getting the word OCD from in the first place where are they learning it's a, a good word to wear this normally from their parents who've learned it from media like I think it's uh, Chloe Kardashian had a show I don't know if it still runs but it was called Chloe CD right uh, and it's just her organising her kitchen and yeah. oh wow I yeah. did not know that that is bad yeah that um, stinks awful and I imagine Chloe Kardashian has over a hundred million followers on Instagram yeah and the rest yeah. yeah and the rest of people who just know who she is and it's just like so so negative and so so we really need these people in big positions to speak about it in the right way in the right way <laughs> yeah I want to talk now about dating Mm-hmm. Because 
it's something we've discussed a little bit in regards to gay men, but there's a lot of taboos that you wanted to talk about, mate, and the stuff that you've talked about on your profile. So one thing that came up, and listeners, you might not know, it's a gay slang term, shall we say, bottom yeah. shaming. So for the listeners who might not know what that is, <laughs> I'm sure they can probably guess, but just explain why some gay men are shamed for this and the impact it can have on their mental health. Okay, so yeah, just uh, some contextual slang if, uh, <laughs> if you're watching a new idea. So within gay scenes, we have the words top and bottom and versatile. So if you're a top, you're the one who is giving mm-hmm. uh, and if you're a bottom you are receiving in sex g and r shall we say g and r, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah so and then if you're versatile you like both mm-hmm. so bottoming i think it just goes into sexism and like sexism just seems to go everywhere and like by being the bottom you're being the the submissive you're being the woman in the relationship in almost. Quotes, yeah yeah does that normally tend to happen with highly effeminate gay men as well yeah for yeah. sure i mean there's a lot of stigma around being a feminine feminine man there's like this aspiration to be passing straight passing mm-hmm. and being masculine and that's what's valued and being like six-pack abs and there's no room for gym culture i imagine plays yeah a lot oh massively well, yeah. um and i think this is more my opinion. I think that plays a bit more uh, into, like, again, trauma from the AIDS crisis, where there was this obsession with looking, like, if you didn't look healthy, it was likely that you had HIV or AIDS. So, you know, because, like... It like would, an emaciated... Yeah, like, that, it yeah. would make you really skinny and really mm. awful. So I think that there's a level of, like, compensation there where our health and how healthy we look has, like, protruded into modern gay culture because it's a sign of being a healthy person like, and not being perceived as having HIV. But that's just my mm. theory. But, yeah, it's definitely... It just, it's like what's happened with Sam Smith in the media recently. So um, I don't uh, care for them <laughs> too much, uh, but they had a music video out where they were being very sexual and uh, had their nipples out and everything. It's been done before. Yeah, but... And George it's Michael like, was doing that in 2003. Exactly, so. yeah, it's been done before. But because Sam Smith is not a skinny, skinny, very attractive person, the media's just gone wild about it. And it's like, mm. so, you know, even outside of the gay community, there's, we just see that, like, the only people who can really exist in gay scenes are masculine gay men. And, you know, women are excluded from, like, a lot of the queer scene as well. There's barely any in Cardiff. There's not a lesbian club. It's all very male-oriented. London has the same problem. Like, heaven heaven notoriously has a problem with not letting women in. Like, it's it's so sexist everywhere. And it's, mm-hmm. like, it's just another space for men a lot of the time. And it really sucks. And we've used the air quotes to describe the term straight acting or, mm. or straight passing gay men. And for the listeners, why is that term problematic? Depending on who you speak to. Yeah, I think it's just... Uh, I don't know, it just... It feeds this narrative that in order for us to be accepted in, in society... In yeah, 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 if we yeah. If we want to be accepted in society, we have to play the part mm-hmm. and we have to be as close to, like, heteronormative society as we possibly can be. And it's just not a... It's not a good place. It's, uh, you know, there's room for everyone of every personality and, like, how would they act. Um, and there's nothing... Obviously, there's nothing... You know, people can't help passing as a, mm-hmm. a gay man oh, no <laughs> passing as straight but then it leads into this whole thing of you know we're so quick to a problem and it's a, it's a big problem when you know if someone hasn't come out or something or might not even be gay but there's an eff- effeminate man we already assume oh yeah they're definitely in gay. Hollywood and stuff like yeah, that. yeah it's like oh they're gay mm-hmm. like everyone just has the conversation oh they're definitely gay but then no one even blinks an eye at a masculine gay man mm-hmm. so it's like can't be a feminine straight man but you can be a masculine gay man it's a really weird like it's just it's just it all just goes into sexism mm. and I almost feel like we're going backwards a little bit yeah I mean we're going we're going so fast forward like culture is moving at such an incredible speed that we can't keep up with it so there's just so much 
bad. I think people are quick well. to assume as well now. Yeah. I think people are, are quick to assume based off stereotypes. So, and probably more so actually in, when I was in school in, in the noughties. So now you might have just a straight guy who's quite effeminate or he's quite flamboyant and people might just go immediately, oh, you're gay. It's actually, mm. well, no, I can be straight, but in however way I want. And I imagine similar, you know, you might get a gay man who is in quote unquote straight acting. People might assume he's straight. He's actually, no, I'm just... I just choose this is just how I present yeah so we, we, it's on both ends of the spectrum there's problems here there's, probably, yeah. there's so many problems yeah I mean I remember one of my best friends in uni he was a straight man but he was just quite effeminate and mm. just the entire three years people would just be so asking so annoying isn't it yeah they'd be yeah. asking me being like oh so do you think he's gay and I'm like it doesn't fucking matter mm. also uh, it's quite homophobic yeah it's just like why do you care yeah. <laughs> why do you care I so genu- much I remember telling this story I told this story I, when I was in Brighton I genuinely got asked if I was gay because I wore skinny jeans mm. oh Honestly, that, I that mean, and I was so confused. I was like, "But how does that? How would you think that I was gay because I wore skinny jeans?" It's just it's also I was shallow. so ba- like I was almost like naive to be baffled by it. Yeah, <laughs> it's just it's so shallow everywhere. Mm. There's plenty of good in the in the in the queer community. I'm trying to use the word queer rather than gay because I think ugh, gay is a great word, but I think it speaks very much close to that gay main man I don't know the just like the gay male experience right. I think there's so many more like levels to it so I like I quite like the word queer but yeah there's so much work to be done and like there's a lot of positive in the queer community for sure but um a lot of bad as well and let's reflect now then on this advocacy journey so what has this part taught you about yourself that I'm just I'm a great public speaker uh, <laughs> um, say it louder say yeah. it louder <laughs> you know it's definitely helped my confidence massive amounts when I first started some of the first videos I uploaded are so cringe and like awkward kind yeah of. Hi. And, like, and I look back at them and I'm like I can't look at the camera and you know I've definitely come it's a long way it's about growth man it's about growth yeah exactly yeah. and like it's just I feel so confident to do it all now and like, I don't even blink about the fact I used to get so worried that I posted too much about my mental health on Instagram mm. and like and I'm just like, oh, I just... Sometimes I have that a little bit. It's yeah. kind of like, oh, I almost feel like... Sometimes I feel like I post just because I feel like I have a responsibility yeah. rather than anything. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I definitely went through that. I, I took a little bit of a break from it because I was like, this feels like a chore now. Mm. It feels like I'm just doing it. When you stop enjoying it, like, yeah. Yeah, so I, I took some time to reflect on what I wanted to do. And, you know, I'm back to it and I, I'm just at my own pace. I'll just upload when I want to upload. And then I think now that I have that perspective, I just do like upload yeah. a lot more. The maddest thing is, is when you get more in control of your mental health, it's probably not conducive to you, but you just post less. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Honestly, it's uh, I always find that it's um, it's really strange. But um, no, it's been it's been a really great journey. Me and my friend won an award last oh, year for one of the videos we did, which was really cool. That was really nice to be recognised. Uh, it was an island. It was really random. Just this <laughs> Irish charity picked up our um, our video and it was got nominated, uh, and then won. But uh, yeah, it's just it's been great, and I've just had so many crazy opportunities and doing. I think coming on podcasts like this, it's just all it's just all so cool. It's not what I imagined I'd be doing two years ago. We've come to our final topic of conversation, Zach, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests if we have time. It is a general natter and chat about mm-hmm. mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health? Yeah, I'd say my mental health is pretty good at the moment. I have recently started dating. That's so, a big step. <laughs> yeah, it's a big step. So I've gone into it very open and very aware the, of the problems I have and you know I've definitely had a lot of anxiety uh, it's been a month so it's been quite it's very recent are you on the apps I assume I'm not on, not oh, on the apps right. not on the okay. apps um, I mean oh, you've got a better game than me then <laughs> yeah I mean it was uh, I, it, the first person I've ever met not on an app to be fair so I mean I'm trying to not put pressure on myself and let it all flow just let it all flow yeah. and be like you know there's no 
there's a, this is the thing, there's no ex, like there's no expectation that this needs to be the person that mm-hmm. I get married to and I'm really just every day as it comes yeah every day as it comes and stay like, present you know so and I think it, you know it's been really really good uh, I'm enjoying I'm enjoying the company mm-hmm. so um yeah I imagine they'll probably watch this so, uh, hi. <laughs> or listen uh, no, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> doing a video podcast just yet <laughs> what age were you mate when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health oh good question um I think fairly early on I'd, I'd say 20 uh okay. 20 is when I like really realised it and started being quite I was very quick to be super open with my mental health. So I think that's just, you know, I live in quite a... Well, my sisters are very open as well, and I've always been brought up around open people. So I think that's just helped. And can you tell me about the first ever conversation you had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What did you say? And what impact did it have? Did it feel like, on the one hand, a really big moment and a big burden or weight lift off your shoulders? Or on the other, something quite easy, insignificant and normal to do? Yeah, I mean, it was with my best friend in the entire world actually Alex we went to a bar and I, at this point I was really going through the whole like OCD with paedophilia theme and I just sat down and I was like look I need to tell you what I'm going through I need to like you're the person I trust most in my life mm-hmm. this is what's going on and this is after I'd been told it was OCD so and he was very I mean he had no idea he was very like whoa he was like but like you're like you're so fine like you know we've, we've been going out classic conversation yeah, yeah, yeah he was like he was like, I'm so confused he was like I had no idea you were depressed and I was like well yeah I am. <laughs> and, you know, we had a big hug and he was very, very lovely about it. And, you know, I think it was a big part of our relationship, our growth in our relationship for sure. But yeah, I think uh, that was the first. And then I was like, you know, I just slowly one by one told people what was going on. And yeah. And what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say to you. It could be a sound, a sensation, being in a particular social environment. Or have you not figured all of them out yet? It's all dating. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> dating just... I don't know what it does. It's just it's just such a a weird time for me, and like you know, I I can't run away from it. I need to, which is why I continually I don't want to say try test yourself, test yeah, myself, yeah, yeah. But then I don't want to because when I say test myself, it makes it sound like the people I'm dating I'm treating as like guinea yeah, pigs, of course, yeah, which is very much not the case. I wouldn't ever date try someone. hard, yeah. yeah, and yeah, I think it's just generally just exclusivity and that sort of thing and you know we're still we're still working on it i've got a therapist again i'm not on medication anymore i haven't been for a while now but yeah i just i think i'm constantly I, I journal now as well i've been very very good with like just really trying to make sure i'm constantly being present with how i'm feeling regarding this and just being very communicative as well i've mm. been you know I, I try and communicate to people i'm dating exactly what i'm going through and like it's hard mate it is hard yeah it's a very hard one to do uh i used to sometimes i'll just tell them on the first date i'll be like oh precautionary uh (laughs) this is uh maybe not the best but i mean if i think it's going well then i'm like look this is generally how my mental health acts and Mm -hmm. like you know i think just go into this knowing if it starts to get a bit like more serious i'm like just this is what Mm -hmm. comes with me and like i am a very anxious person and i don't want you to think that I'm anxious like even though I'm anxious about you when I'm dating you it's not about you it's about it's the OCD that I'm anxious about so you know it can be especially when the thoughts are saying things like oh I find you disgusting or Mm. like you know what if you find this person repulsive Mm. like that's not something you ever want to tell your partner of course but just trying to educate them and let them know that it's not actually about yeah. them uh has been very helpful for me um, you've talked there about positive tools and methods so my next question is what is the best book or as i call it mental health bible you've read for your mental health now it can be mental health or self-help related but 
doesn't exclusively have to be. It can be fiction, it can be anything you want. And if it's not a book, play, podcast, TV show, whatever. Okay, so I'm going to say there's two things I want to say. Okay. So the first one is The Chimp Paradox. Yes. Chimp Paradox really helped me when I was Steve younger. Steve Peters. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's probably it's quite a simple book. I think it's probably a mental health beginner's book. I've been trying. I've been meaning to try and buy it, but then I just hear so much about it. I'm like, I always feel like I've taken it in already. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's a really really good book, and I think for mind management, it really really helped. And it's like the base basis of the book, if you've never heard of it, is that you've got to treat your mind like a chimp, and that you can't beat a chimp. A chimp is so much stronger than you, but you can tame one. Um, Some people don't know that chimps are very strong and yeah. much stronger than humans as well. Uh, so it's just about taming your mind. The second book, I think. Thing that's been really influential for me is the velvet rage i can't remember the author of it now but it's a book all about gay shame and like internalized homophobia and coming to acceptance so yeah i'd say that self-help moment, then yeah yeah kind of self-help it's more about the, the process of going from a, a gay man with a lot of shame turning into a gay man with a lot of acceptance and the three stages of the gay lifestyle i guess not the gay life <laughs> like the gay journey the gay journey yeah. yeah so i'd say those and then i do wanted to say one song that really really helped me i have a tattoo on my arm it's a little alien which was a song by kesha uh, oh, okay yeah called spaceship it was off one of her newer albums kind of after the whole like free kesha movement and the dr she, luke the dr uh, luke scandal yeah, yeah yeah allegedly yeah so she released a song after that and it was all about finding there was this one part in it one quote in it in particular which was like nothing is real love is everything and i know nothing or something like that it was just the way she says it is so much better um mm. but that's a good quote yeah. Didn't expect that from Kesha. Yeah, it was it's honestly she it was just such a beautiful quote and it really helped me when I was going through it really badly, so I got it tattooed on me. And as a final question, mate, what more do we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life, feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health, if most importantly they want to do it? I think just find people around you that you trust and, you know, start small just try and have that conversation i think you, you people are so much more open to these conversations than you'd expect them to be a lot of the time and whether they don't understand or you know i don't think they have to understand either i think the main thing that i've learned and probably the most underrated thing is that listening is a very hard thing to do sometimes you don't need solutions you just need someone to talk at I remember one of my best friends was really sweet. I went on this big rant. He was just completely silent. And I felt really awkward. I was like, oh, I was, I'm sorry. And he, he was like, no, no. He was like, I'm, he was like, I'm comfortable just being silent with you. And it was just a really beautiful thing for me. So I think, yeah, just, just try and be open. Even if it's just one person that you trust in your life. Just do it. And then just be kind to yourself. Back yourself. That's uh, what you need to do. No, but, if that's going to be message of this podcast, yeah, back yourself. Back yourself. Because yeah. no one else is going to. So you've just got to, and just, yeah, there's just so much awful hurt in the world right now and always. So the least you could do is just give yourself some love. Zachary James, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking Podcast and talk to me, mate. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great time. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In Pod. I want to say a massive thank you to Zach for being my special guest, for talking so openly and bravely about his OCD, and for letting me check in with him. I'll put Zach's social media channels where you can watch his videos and follow his journey in the show notes as always. I'll sign us off by saying thank you to all the vendors who've tuned into this episode. If you've liked what you've heard, give it a share across social media or tell your friends or work colleagues about it or your family. If you're feeling generous, please write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing here at Vent, please consider also supporting us by going to patreon.com slash venthelpuk or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe 
or you can buy a vent t-shirt or you can also buy a ticket to Just Checking In Live number four, Take Two, which is on Saturday the 15th of April 2023 at the Victoria Pub in Dawson. We are almost at 60% tickets sold, so please come along if you want to. It'll be an absolutely amazing night. All of those links are also on our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Help.